In the Mahayana tradition of Buddhism, there is one famous sutta in which the Buddha is sitting on top of a mountain surrounded by monks and nuns and lay people. And he holds up a flower. And one of the monks, Mahakasapa, one of the great disciples, smiles. That's the entire sutta. Buddha holds up a flower and Mahakasapa smiles. In that flower, in the holding up of the flower, if we can understand it correctly, all of the Dhamma is revealed. When we see the flower, we can understand how forms conditioned by causes are endlessly changing whether it's the form of the flower, the form of the body, the form of the earth. Forms conditioned by causes are endlessly changing. When we look at the flower, we can understand the nature of beauty and the nature of decay, that both are contained in the flower. We can understand the emptiness of phenomena. That is, that actually there's no core to the flower, but rather it's just elements in relationship to one another. We understand the emptiness of phenomena, and we also understand what in the Zen tradition is called the suchness of things. Just things as they are without interpretation, without concept. How can you describe the sound of a bell or the smell of a rose? There's a certain quality of suchness to the phenomena that we can understand in that discourse of the Buddha. just with the sound of the bell. There's no inside, there's no outside, there's no bell, there's no ear. There's just what there is. In every moment of experience, It's as if the Buddha is holding up the flower. In every thought, in every sensation, in every sound, in every smell, in every moment, it's the Buddha holding up the flower. All the 84,000 discourses of the Buddha are contained in the flower, are contained in each moment. 
It's not surprising that Mahakasapa smiled. So our practice is to settle back into the moment, into each moment, with the quality of active listening. with the sense of becoming one with experience, settling back, not settling back and going to sleep, settling back in a complete awareness, a complete openness, a oneness in that moment's experience. The story of This one man in the time of the Buddha, who although he himself was quite respected and revered, he knew that he had not attained full realization. He had heard about the Buddha and so he traveled all across India to meet with him. He found the Buddha walking on the streets to collect alms food. And this man said, please teach me. I want to know, I want to know the truth, the deepest truth. And the Buddha said, wait, we'll go back to the monastery and I'll teach you. And this man insisted a second time and a third time. Finally, the Buddha surrendered. This guy was very persistent. But how can he express it just standing in the middle of the road, how could he express just the essence? Of course, being the Buddha, he was quite able to. This is what he said. And listen quite carefully, because this man got enlightened when he heard this. This is what the Buddha told this man. He said, in the scene that is seen with the eyes, there is just what is seen. In the heard, just what is heard. In the sense that is smell and taste and sensed in the body, there is just what is sensed. And in the thought, just what is thought. It's so incredibly simple. In the seen, just the seen. In the heard, just the heard. In the sensed, just the sensed. In the thought, just the thought. In each moment, there is just what there is. No self, no I, no separation. Just phenomena arising and passing away. This is a level of non-separation. It's a level of oneness where we are the experience rather than having the experience. It's not that the experience is happening to us, but rather in each moment, we are that moment's experience. No separation. 
The question is, then, how do we lose this sense of oneness? Because I think we can understand it, at least conceptually, intellectually, we can see that that's how things are. But somehow we've lost the sense, we've lost the experience of this oneness of things. How has that happened? In a book called The Spectrum of Consciousness, Ken Wilbur described this process of separation, of duality, which resonates very closely with the kinds of experience we have in our meditation practice. Because it really describes some very fundamental process of conditioning in our minds through which we create this sense of duality on deeper and deeper levels. The first level of separation, the first level of duality, in some ways the most basic one, is the separation of this mind-body organism from the environment. We separate out from the whole, identifying with this, this mind-body, as being I, as being self. So this is the fundamental creation of subject and object, of self and other, of inside and outside. Because we are identifying, we've become lost in the identification process with this mind-body organism. So that's the first separation, that's the first duality. There's a further separation, a further narrowing, a further restriction when we not only identify with this mind-body organism as being separate from everything else, separate from the environment, but when we identify with the mind within the mind-body organism. And so there's that sense of I'm the one who has a body. The body belongs to me. My body, my leg, my arm, my sensations. We've created a narrower sense of I through the identification with this mind, the ego mind. And so we start relating from this ego center to everything outside of this ego whether it's sensations in the body, the body as a whole, the environment, other people. We're relating from this sense of I within the body. And because of this, because we are now identified in this narrower way, 
it conditions in us many mind states of comparison, of attachment, of fear, of grasping. But the mind is not content to even stop at that. There's a further split, a further fragmentation. And that is, we don't even identify with the mind as a whole. But rather, we fragment the mind into <coughs> what has been called the persona and the shadow. The persona being that part of the mind which is the mask of all our self-images and thoughts and feelings and emotions, everything that we identify with in the mind and take to be self. My thoughts, my feelings, my emotions, this is the persona, the image that we have created of ourselves. And the shadow is all that in the mind which is unacceptable, which we have not integrated, which we don't allow, which we push away. There might be certain emotions that are unacceptable, dark ones, fearful ones, unpleasant, ones that <coughs> don't fit our self-image. I'm a person who would never tell a lie. And so, <clears throat> the liar inside becomes part of the shadow. Not acceptable to the image of ourselves. And to the extent <clears throat> that we don't allow for the shadow side, we remain unconscious and certainly unmindful of all those parts of the mind which actually are motivating us and conditioning us to a very large extent. We think we're pushing it away successfully, but actually the shadow just follows us around like a shadow. So you can see how each level of fragmentation is a further narrowing of our sense of ourselves. We start out from a place of non-duality, a place of suchness, of things just as they are. And then we narrow to the mind-body. This is who I am. I'm not the totality of things. I'm just this organism. And then we narrow even further to the mind within the organism. And then we narrow even further to the persona within the mind. And so we've created for ourselves this narrow, tight little prison, which we very proudly call self. This and we wonder why we have this feeling of separation or alienation or duality. 
not only are we split off from everything outside of ourselves, we're split off from things within ourselves. And so the path of Dharma, the path of our practice, is to somehow reunite, to integrate, to make whole what has become fragmented. And we start off with a unification of the persona and shadow. First we become aware, and this becomes so clear in the meditation, we become aware of all of the self-images that we are so fond of, that we identify with, and we see their impermanence, we see their insubstantiality. All the posing in the mind, the posturing in the mind, the role-playing in the mind. Any self-image at all that arises in the mind, we see that. We see it over and over and over again. And through that awareness, we stop identifying with them. We see that they're just mind objects coming and going. And likewise, through the stillness of our practice, we begin to allow for the shadow to emerge. We've spent the last three months seeing both all the self-images that come and also so much of the shadow side. All those times of difficulty, difficult emotions, unpleasant things, things which we wanted to push away. And through the practice, there grows a greater sense of acceptance, of dispassion. We see we no longer have to fear that side. We become open to the entire range. We're no longer clinging to the self-image. We're no longer pushing away or fearful of the shadow. It all becomes a dance of the mind. Because all of it is impermanent, all of it is empty. It's just phenomena arising and vanishing. And so we begin to unify this split. We become whole to that extent. As we become more fully accepting of the entire range of things in the mind, both the persona and the shadow, without any identification, we can then work to integrate this split or fragmentation between the mind and body. What this means is that we see with increasing clarity the interdependence of the mind and body. It's not that the I is a self inside who has a body. But rather the mental physical elements arise interdependent on one another. Very simple example which we experience and which is talked about in the Abhidhamma, or Buddhist psychology, 
is that understanding, for example, of how hearing consciousness arises. There's a sound, which is physical element, the airwaves. There's the physical elements of the ear. There's the mental factor of attention. From these three conditions, hearing consciousness arises. You have the sound, you have the ear, you have attention, the conditions for consciousness to arise. There's no one waiting. There's no little person waiting in the ear to catch the sound. It's this play of elements, mental, physical elements. But a great deal of care and subtlety is needed in understanding this unification of the mind and body, of healing this duality. It doesn't mean that we obliterate the distinction between the mind and body, because in fact they are two different processes. Rather, we stop identifying with the mind as being self. And so we begin to see the mind and body each as elements of a whole. There's a very apt image which comes from Greek mythology which describes this unification process. And that is the image of a centaur. If you remember your Greek mythology, it's a being with the body of a horse and the head, the upper part of a man. That's a very different image than one of a person riding the horse, which is generally our sense of the body, the mind riding the body as being separate. Through our practice, we can begin to understand that centaur image where we see the mind-body organism as a unified whole, not without distinction, but phenomena in which we are not identifying with either part of it. So we're not limiting, we're not separating. So first we open to the whole range of mind, unified persona and shadow. Then we see the interdependence of the mind and body, mental, physical elements, and unify that duality. From this place, we can begin to heal the most basic split, which is that of self and other, of inside and outside. It becomes clear in so many ways. 
becomes clear when we hear the sound of a bell. Where is inside and where is outside? It becomes clear with every breath. Now we sit and there's an in-breath Is the air part of us or outside of us? It doesn't make sense to draw that distinction. What we are, our experience, is part of a whole. Yes, I'm the body and the air is coming into me. Why do that? That is just an identification which limits, which creates separation. We see a sunset. If we're identified with this, what exists within the skin as being I, So then it's, I'm watching the sunset. When we let go of that, and there is just the experience of seeing, just the experience of the different feelings which may come, there is no separation in that moment. There is no duality. There is just what there is. In the seen, just the seen. In the heard, just the heard. In the sensed, just the sensed. In the thought, just the thought. And so we start operating not from this ego center, which we've created through identification on some level in this process. We go from the ego center to the zero center. where there is no identification with anything. Not with the persona, not with the shadow, not with the body, not with the mind, not with inside, not with outside. Just the Buddha holding up the flower in every moment. So how to do this? The basic attitude which allows us to be living this moment to moment is one of settling back into the moment's experience, not a reaching out, not a trying to get, just a settling back into each moment with awareness, with alertness. There's a old Chinese saying which says, sitting quietly doing nothing, spring comes and the grass grows by itself. Sitting quietly, spring comes and the grass grows by itself. Sitting quietly, doing nothing, 
there's rising. Sitting quietly, doing nothing, there's falling. Sitting quietly, doing nothing, thoughts come, sounds come, sensations come. Sitting quietly, doing nothing, everything is there. But we're such busybodies. <laughs> if we can just settle back and allow each moment's experience to come and go as it is coming and going. There's one Thai meditation master, he, he summed up his understanding of the Dharma. He said, there's nothing to do, nothing to be, nothing to have. Makes practice very simple when we get this. It's just settling back and allowing each moment to be itself. It's really opening to the rhythm, to the rhythm of life, to the rhythm of experience. But what this necessitates is this deep recognition, the deep understanding of change. Because if we don't fully see that, understand it, the conditioning and tendency of mind is both to cling, to get attached, or to identify with something. And so we lose the rhythm, we lose the balance, we lose that spontaneity of spring coming and the grass growing by itself. It's not holding on, it's not pushing away. The Taoists called <coughs> this flow of life experience the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. That's what life is. They're more poetic than the Abhidhamma description of you know, pleasant feelings, unpleasant feelings, neutral feelings. <laughs> But it's the same thing. The 10,000 joys, the 10,000 sorrows, that's what's arising moment after moment. Can we settle back and allow for this very natural process? And sometimes people hear this settling back and they think that it means inaction or a withdrawal. Non-action is not inaction. Non-action of mind means a non-reactivity. It doesn't mean non-responsiveness. There's a very important distinction between reacting to things and responding to things. Reacting is our habitual conditioning of liking and disliking and holding and pushing away. And responding is being there, accepting, being open to each moment's experience and taking the appropriate action. Not from a place of reactivity, but from a place of understanding. It's the difference between equanimity and indifference. Indifference is a pulling back, is a not caring. Equanimity is that perfect balance of mind 
which accepts everything and can respond in the correct way. The power of the Buddha's teaching is the discipline of simplicity. Really what you've been learning all of these months in some way is just to be simple. One teacher said that if you sit and know that you're sitting, the whole Dhamma will be revealed. Sit and know you're sitting. That's all that we have to do. Walk and know you're walking. Eat and know you're eating. In each moment, just to be aware, to know what we're doing. This simplicity, which is really um, what the noting is about as a tool, it's to remind us of the simplicity. There's just this, just this, just this, just this, just this, just this. Whether it's a thought or a feeling or a movement or a sight, just what there is. This simplicity leads to a tremendous spaciousness of mind. It cuts through the confusion. It cuts through the complexity. We settle back simply into the moment. Now, when you do the walking meditation, I particularly enjoy the walking for many reasons, but there's something which becomes so clear in it. Now, we're just taking a step, taking a step, and between two steps, the mind can create a whole world, an amazing world of people and events and travel and And then you take the next step and you put it to the ground. (laughs) There's such ease in being simple. Just stepping, 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 stepping. We're right here. There's a spaciousness which comes from that. Suzuki Roshi was this great contemporary Zen master who wrote Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. He said that the best way to control a cow is to give it a big pasture. In some way, that's what we're learning to do with our minds. Give it a big pasture. This doesn't mean that we just go off and get lost in our daydreams and reveries and fantasies and thoughts and planning and judging. What it does mean is that we're accepting of whatever arises. We're not trying to confine the mind in a tight place. Whatever arises is fine. And we're with it. We're aware of it. 
The Taoists call this free and easy wandering. I like that phrase, free and easy wandering. An image that you might use in your practice, it's like giving a horse free rein. You just give the horse free rein. It goes where it goes, but one stays on it and not thrown off the horse. Rising, falling, thinking, seeing, hearing, rising, falling, rising, falling, thinking, seeing. Moment after moment after moment, a nice big pasture. There's an ease there and a spaciousness there, which makes our life very simple. There's one great understanding which I hope you have gotten by now. And that is that mindfulness is not paranoia. (laughs) It's not, the sitting is not kind of sitting and... (laughs) It's not being grim. It's not being tight. Mindfulness is really becoming one with each object of experience. In every moment, the Buddha is holding up the flower. Can we see it? Can we be aware of it? Can we be one with it? One of the strongest allies for us in this task of settling back into the moment, in the task of easing the mind, the task of stopping the struggle, is the quality of interest and investigation. Because this whole phenomenal world is such an incredible mystery. I just want to read you two sentences from this book. We now know that our galaxy is only one of some hundred thousand million that can be seen using modern telescopes. Each galaxy itself containing some hundred thousand million stars. Our galaxy is about 100,000 light years across and is slowly rotating. Our sun is just an ordinary average-sized yellow star near the inner edge of one of the spiral arms. (laughs) It's big. (laughs) And that's only what we know through our modern telescopes. A hundred thousand million galaxies And each galaxy has a hundred thousand million stars. (laughs) And what is even more amazing 
is that the mind consciousness has the potential to comprehend all of that. Not only through telescopes, but through its own power. It is a tremendous mystery. This whole process that we are. And if we can tap into that, it arouses in the mind this incredible sense of awe and interest to explore it, to understand it. And if we don't, we just stay caught up in our little identifications, you know, with this or that thought or this or that feeling. And we lead such constricted lives when there's so much that is possible. And it becomes possible when we learn how to silent, silence our minds a bit. To become open, to become spacious, to become allowing. And in that, this mystery begins to reveal itself. And the deeper we go and the more powerful our minds become, the deeper levels we can understand. What are some of the obstacles to this? How do we keep getting caught in our identifications? One of the ways that we get caught over and over again, powerful habit of conditioning, is the habit of expectation and resistance. We're with experience, but there's an overlay of expectation of wanting something to happen, or wanting something different to be there. And what's quite subtle and necessary to observe very carefully is how very often expectation comes disguised as right effort. And so we actually think we're making in effort you know, to understand and to deepen, very often it's simply expectation in disguise. And so pay attention, be aware if there's that edge of reaching out for something rather than the becoming one with. In each moment, can we be one with the experience? Sensation, sound, thought, feeling, image. Expectation and resistance when we don't want something, when we push something away. The great lesson of practice and something which we need to learn over and over again is that what is important is not the particular experience itself,
but the relationship of the mind to the experience. Is there balance? Is there openness? Is there acceptance? And so the time here, over these months, has not been about collecting experiences. As I hope has become obvious, because no matter what the experience is, it's gone. It's gone, it's gone, it's gone. What can be developed is a tremendous strength of balance of mind that is open and receptive to whatever experience comes. That's where the true wisdom is. Another obstacle to opening to the mystery, of exploring the mystery, is our attachment to our own self-images and roles and concepts. And even when we begin to lose the sense of our worldly self-images, we often create spiritual self-images. When I first started practicing, I was so enthusiastic about it. The very first time, I was just so amazed. I, I just sat down, it was just for a few minutes, but I started watching my breath. It was just, it was amazing to me. Just that there was a way of turning inward rather than looking outward. And just didn't get very far in that you know, first little bit, but just the turning inwards and that there was actually a way to go inside, to explore this, seemed so phenomenal to me. And I got so enthusiastic, I used to invite my friends over to watch me meditate. <laughs> you know, I, they didn't come back. <laughs> it was... I'm still doing it. <laughs> you know, one of the very nice things about studying with different teachers is that you begin to see the Dhamma expressed in so many different ways and through so many different personalities. And we've spoken over the course of these months about a few of our teachers. Uh, one of my early ones was Goenkaji, who's businessman, was a businessman, very powerful, very charismatic, very strong energy. When you sat with him, you could really feel the, the energy of it in his metta. I started with Munindraji, who was just totally the opposite. He was like this little elf dressed in white, running around all over the place. He was a great teacher in letting go of self-image because he didn't fit my image at all of how a teacher should be. He used to come, I'd be sitting, and this I'd been there for some time, and getting into this place where my practice was really still and deep and calm and peaceful, 
And he would just come and bring all these travelers through, you know, to speak to me. And it was such a nuisance. <laughs> I was to hear his footsteps coming, I would get so irritated, you know, that he was coming to disturb my practice for nonsense. But at a certain point, my mind just had to let go, and I'd hear him coming, and so I'd get up, I'd speak to whoever it was, say goodbye, go back and sit. There was no problem. It took several years to learn that. (laughs) I think the thing he said that was the most help to me in my practice, actually he said two things, which, which really, were just really important for me. One was this constant reminder to stay simple and easy. You just say that over and over again. Stay simple and easy. I'd go in, you know, with some drama or other. Just be simple and easy. And I realized that if you take things simply and easily, one's life becomes simple and easy. You know, and we can do that because things are just coming and going. We don't have to get so caught up in the identification and the drama. As I was leaving Bodh Gaya the first time, I had just been there about a couple of months, I was pulling away in the rickshaw, and he said something which at the time sounded to me just like kind of cliché, but over the years, I have come to appreciate so much. He said, the Dhamma protects those who protect the Dhamma. And just over all these years of practice, it has become so alive to me. The Dhamma protects those who protect the Dhamma. If we really live it, there is a tremendous power There was Goenka Munindra Deepama, who we've spoken of a lot, this woman in Calcutta. Some amazing amalgamation of love and emptiness. And normally one thinks of them as being so different. You know, that if you're very empty, it's kind of cold and withdrawn and if there's a lot of love it's very full of self she was such an inspiration to see that the two really are different sides of the same thing Upandita is totally different than any of the others I mean, he is just this incredible Dhamma warrior, you know. I think one of his favorite expressions of practice, if you die in practice, it's noble. (laughs) You know, know, it's absolutely fine if you die while you're sitting or walking. (laughs) So that was something else again. (laughs) 
what's been so helpful in just being with all of these teachers is to realize that there is not just one way to be. And that we don't have to become like anybody else. Because we are each going to express the Dharma in our own way. Through our own way of being. And there's a great relief in that. We can really settle back and become ourselves. Something that is emphasized in all of the traditions of the Buddhist teaching is how precious this human birth is. Being in circumstances which allow us to practice, which allow us to explore this amazing mystery, is tremendously precious and tremendously rare. And so reminding oneself of that, so that we really stay connected to our own deepest inspiration, not getting caught up so much in the surface waves. To look in our lives at what it is that we're cultivating. Where are we going? What are we doing? Is it what we most deeply value? To close with, I'd like to mention one little story about Kalu Rinpoche, this very great Tibetan meditation master. He had one disciple from Canada who had practiced with him and then went back to Canada to live her life. And she was getting caught up in all the worldly concerns and all the difficulties you know, of maintaining practice in one's daily life. She wrote him a letter you know, describing the difficulties she was having. And she said that the only thing that kept her going was keeping the thought of Rinpoche in her heart. And he sent back a card with one line on it. The nature of the heart is emptiness. But being the manifestation of both wisdom and compassion, he followed it with a short letter. (laughs) In which he wrote... When you practice the holy dharma, slowly the clouds of sorrow will drift away, and the sun of wisdom and great joy will be shining in the clear sky of your mind. When you practice the holy dharma, slowly the clouds of sorrow will drift away, and the sun of wisdom and great joy will be shining in the clear sky of your mind.
That's our practice. Let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.